God, just, um, just as I prayed before um, with the team, just um, ask that, Jesus, that, that you would care for your kids tonight, myself included, that you would care, to us, uh, care for us um, by your spirit. Would you, would you reveal things in our own heart that, that I cannot do from the pulpit, um, that only you can do as you um, care for and nurture your children, um, as you um, poke and prod us um, toward um, spiritual maturity? as you poke and prod us toward um, areas in our life where we've um, hooked into the world rather than hooked into you, um, would you just reveal those as you've done with me? And I pray that that continues. Um, again, just to make tonight all about you, Jesus, would you um, have your way with the service, with those that are here? Um, we thank you for what you've done. We thank you for what you're still currently doing. Um, and we thank you for what you're going to do and that you promised to do in the end. Um, when you finally said that enough is enough. And so we look forward to seeing you again. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Well, I know I haven't, I haven't gotten a chance to listen to Zach's sermon from last week. I normally do that during my work week, but I was away on business, and then it was a crazy chaotic thing. So I, I confess I haven't heard, but I did check with him. And I know that he did spend quite a bit of time on spiritual immaturity last week. And just the, the, the three verses before we pick up chapter 6, and so as, as Zach has said, remember that, that these books were not written with big numbers. They weren't broken into chapters. They, they weren't broken into even thought ideas. These were continuous letters. Um, and this one really does read like a sermon. And if you've been to, um, whether it's here, whether you've been elsewhere, if you've been to good Bible preaching, Bible teaching, Jesus-loving, gospel-centered churches, you know that in, in preaching there's, there's time of warning, there's time of encouragement, there's time of um, exhortation, there's time of um, conviction. And so this is playing out in this passage too. And, and one of the, the beautiful things about Calvary Chapel is that we go verse by verse through the Bible. So we don't get to skip over the uneasy things. We don't get to just kind of jump ahead or, or jump back or avoid entire issues. I grew up in a, a different Protestant denomination and I can tell you that happens a lot. Um, it's based on what the pastor wants to talk about and where they can find verses to support it. Um, we don't have that luxury. And which is great. It, it stretches us as teachers, and I pray it stretches you as hearers, um, that we don't get to avoid the hard things. And this arguably is a hard thing. This chapter is arguably a hard thing. But you may be surprised to know that I'm not going to spend on, uh, much time on the section that entire denominations have split over. Because I think they, they truly do a lot of times miss the point of it. And my, my job is to, is to simply look at the text in some and bring you some of the big ideas with details along the way. But this, you just need to know that as we open to this chapter, it's tough. It's tough for two reasons. It's tough because it continues a warning and some harsh language up front for the hearers, the Hebrews that were, that were being written to, and we don't know who wrote this book. And there was different types of, of struggles that, that the author was addressing and preaching to. So in one sense, it's, it's tough because there's some harsh language coming out of last chapter into this one. But he doesn't leave us there. He goes into encouragement. He goes into hope, which is um, epic. Um, but it's also, it's also got a section that, as I said, has, has been entirely divisive in the church. It's a secondary issue, and yet we've split over it. The Bible allows for disagreement in church. It doesn't ask that we all be the exact same denomination with the exact same bylaws and leadership style and all that sort of thing. The Bible doesn't demand that. It allows for some disagreement on secondary and tertiary issues. There are primary issues, and I've taught on these in the past, 
There are primary issues. If you have questions about what those are, the, 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 the close-handed issues, there's a small collection of issues that if you disagree on even one, I would argue that you are not a Christian. But for the most part, we're not arguing about these. We're arguing about all these over here, which are open-handed issues. And so this is one of those times that the church has split over it. There's, a, there's an immense kind of pressure put on this chapter but it's, it's almost a disservice because the chapter, the, the thought doesn't end there. It blends right into hope and encouragement and right into the work that Jesus is currently doing and still has yet to do. So that's where I want to get us. I don't want to get up all doctrinal and go through the bullet points of why people believe this about repentance and when can you, if you fall away, could you come back and I'll never get it back and Jesus won't, and all this sort of stuff that people focus on. I want to get us to the hope. Because this is, a, this is a, a, a really tough season. Anyone agree with me? Four. Terrific. And so, <laughs> you all have made your decision, and it's terrific, apparently. <laughs> it, feel, it feels unstable. We go through this all the time. In election, we feel unstable, don't we? Which way is it going to go, right? Look, even the markets, even companies shift strategies based on what's going to come down from Washington. It, it's this unease. It's that, that, that kind of... D- that gross taste in your mouth with all the nastiness that's going on. Pastor Rob said it this morning. This is the most disgusting election in his lifetime, right? Certainly mine. Certainly probably, it's just, it's, it's abhorrent almost. It's disgusting. It feels unstable. It feels like the very foundations are being shook in this country, depending on your perspective. Maybe that's good. Maybe that's bad. But it feels unstable, does it not? The markets are trying to anticipate and shift because what? Instability. People don't know, is housing going to drop? Is it going to go up based on who and here and where? It feels unstable. If, if you've hooked too deeply into the things of this world. If, if this island moves and you're hooked into it, you will feel unstable. But there's hope. There is hope. It doesn't mean we're not involved. It doesn't mean we don't care about. It doesn't mean that we don't work to effect by any means. The Bible has a clear call to work to effect. We work to affect the things of this world, right? To, to, to reflect the glory of God, the nature of God in a broken and lost world. But we have our hang, anchor hooked somewhere else that allows us to do it. And so we're tethered to something that's unchanging. That's Jesus. That's his gospel. And so we're going to begin chapter six, but I hope that just sets the tone. I hope you already see the light ahead because we got to get through a little bit of, of the, the trenches up front because he's coming out of this section. The last couple verses, he's talking about spiritual immaturity. Was he not? And Zach, Zach said that he spent a lot of time on that last week. And so the, the idea is continuing, okay, from last week. And so chapter six, he says, therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection. So the, the writer has just gotten done rebuking readers for spiritual immaturity, but he knows that there's nothing gained from ending there. Thank goodness. He didn't put a period and end the book. He's now going to begin to push us toward encouragement. He says, therefore, leaving the discussion of elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection. Don't read that wrong. The, the word in the original language in the ancient Greek is not necessarily, perfection is not the greatest translation. It's actually maturity. 
Let us go on toward maturity, perfection, okay? Perfecting, the perfecting work and the perfecting understanding of our faith. So it's, it's far better translated maturity than perfection. We'll never see perfection this side of eternity. But we are called, for those of you that are just like, well, I've accepted Jesus and then I get to get comfortable. We are called to an ongoing process of sanctification, which means that you're growing more mature in your faith. Christianity is not comfortable in any sense of the word. And what's happening is that as he's writing this to the Hebrews, what they were coming out of was quite comfortable. But when they lurched into this new understanding of the gospel and God's new covenant, it got very uncomfortable very fast because they became incredibly persecuted. Incredibly persecuted. I did a trip to Rome um, some time back. And one of the most profound things, the Colosseum is great and the architecture is great and the museums are great and the cappuccinos are great and the, the bread is amazing, just carb city over there, right? The pasta, it's amazing, lots of simple carbs. But one of the, um, one of the, the most profound parts of my trip was going underground into what's known as the catacombs. This city has entire sections that are built upon the underground cemeteries and worship houses of the early church. We're not there yet. There may be more persecution coming, but we certainly aren't meeting underground and burying our dead in the hallways of our church. You walk down the aisles, you walk down all the network of hallways, and there are boxes, there are cutouts with inscriptions, ichthus, that fish, right, that we put on our SUVs because we think we're cool, right? They were scraping ichthuses into the wall underneath the city of Rome and putting dead people there. You walk in, it smells like donuts and coffee. Does it not? It smelled like dead bodies for them. And then there were cavities cut out, and this is where they worshipped. Christianity was very uncomfortable. Judaism had almost a bit of prestige, though Jews have certainly been persecuted as well, but they had been carved out in history at that point. But this new thing, this new Christianity thing, now they were not only facing persecution from Roman emperors and governors and and the government and and the secular folk, but now they were going to start facing it in-house with their fellow Jews who they grew up with. Christianity was very uncomfortable. And what he's going to here challenge them to do is to not slip back into that comfort, is to not fall back. Now, this is not a perfect analogy. All analogies fail over time, Okay. Jews are God's people. Israel, God's people. We understand that. So make that big divergence as I go forward with the analogy. But we all know that general spirituality is super popular these days. General spirituality. People say, I'm, you go to college, right? And they ask you, oh, what faith? You know, this thing. You say, I'm not religious. I'm spiritual. Right? Not religious. I'm spiritual. Which means I, I just want to be vague. I want to be general about this. I just, I just love people and, and, and I don't, talk about there's nothing really kind of clear and we want to get back into this comfortable spot you don't want to draw a line in the sand and say it's jesus or hell it's not fun i get it jesus himself said it talked about hell more than anyone it's uncomfortable and it brings what it reaps what persecution are you serious an ancient book you you spend your life you base it off you worship this book no we worship the guy that the book is about but it, it, it gets uncomfortable when you have to start drawing that line. And he's saying here, he's saying, don't fall back. 
Don't slip back into Judaism. Don't slip back into general religiosity, even though, again, even though I, I understand Israel is God's people, so it's not a perfect analogy, but this idea of general spirituality is when you start to hear the actual gospel priest, you realize there are some very clear lines in the sand. There is a lot of room for grace. I pray Zach and I have, have, have stewarded you properly to understand that there is a lot of room for grace. Why? Because we've been given a lot of grace. But there are, some, there are some areas that it is just very clear where the gospel ends and where the anti-gospel begins. And so he's going to encourage them in this maturity to head that way, to head forward in their faith rather than to fall back. Does that make sense? And so toward these elementary principles of Christ, it's like the ABCs. What he's saying is like, what's the point of learning how to spell if you never write sentences? What's the point of learning how to spell words if you never go on to write poetry or to use it constructively? What's the point of learning how to say words? I got a 10-month-old. We're just trying to get her to get her first words out, right? What's the point of learning individual words if we don't piece them together at some point? If we don't begin to connect the dots for something bigger, for something better? And so what he's saying is you've, you've learned, and this is, the earliest, this is the early phase of the gospel, he says, look, you've, essentially you've learned some new terms. You've learned some new concepts, some ideas. These are elementary. Oh, it's offensive. Not really. He's saying, look, these are the building blocks. But what are building blocks meant to have done to them? Be built upon, right? You don't just go through neighborhoods of foundation. What do they do? They build houses on foundation. That's what serves people. Is that you build upon foundations. You don't just say, well, we have a foundation. Like I accepted Jesus. I was at church camp, had a whole spiritual awakening thing. Fell down, cried a little bit, talked with my counselor, came back. I've got a good foundation. I mean, that's it, right? Saved by grace through faith, bro. Right? Now we talk about, well, let's let's build the house. Oh, I'm not legalist. Not legal. Well, you're going to freeze come winter. Not out here because we don't have that thing. But um, you get what I'm saying? saying these are the building blocks. Yeah, you're getting it. But, but, but don't be satisfied with the building blocks. He's coming out of saying, don't be immature in your faith. And now he's going to push you toward a maturity in faith. How's that going? How's that going for you? Do you feel like you're progressing? Do you feel like you're getting more mature? Are you every day, every day, I'm not talking about big lurches. I'm talking about every day, are you growing a little more affectionate for Jesus? Is every day, do you smile a little bit more based on what he's done for you, despite us doing nothing for him? Every day, do you get a little closer to him? Does it, is it a little sweeter? When I say the gospel, does it mean a little more? Or is it still drab religiosity? I told my parents I'd go to church while I was at college. So here I am. What do you got? Right? That's none of you, apparently. I didn't say that. I'm here on my own, right? But he's pushing us forward saying, don't fall back. And it's an interesting list that he pulls together. He says, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrines of baptisms, of laying on hands, of resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. Now, many regard this as like a list of the foundations of the faith. It's not what the author means. This was not set up to be, and they've done, they do entire studies, they do entire seminars, they do entire coursework, they do entire books on this. These are the foundations. It says it right there. He's actually saying that don't get stuck on these, and the irony is that people get stuck on these. It's like Jesus being like, don't pray like the hypocrites, and then he does the Lord's Prayer, and then what do we do? Just go through the Lord's Prayer like a hypocrite, right? He's literally just modeled it for us, 
And says, like, don't pray like them, which is just standing on, just muttering the same thing over and over. And he says, do it. Here's a model prayer. Here's what a good prayer looks like. And what do we do? We go on the corner with the Lord's Prayer. No. And we do the exact same thing. So he gives us his list and says, these are some foundational stuff. We've got to move beyond these. And the irony is in the church in America, we're like, oh, a list. Let's make a book. Right? He's saying get beyond these things. Because here's the interesting thing. That list, that list is not exclusively Christian. That list could be found in the Orthodox Jewish community. Some of you are like, no way, baptisms. The word translated, I look it up, can't pronounce it because it's in Greek, sue me. Okay, can't pronounce it, not going to try. I took French in high school and was bad at that even. Okay, and so the word actually means ceremonial cleansing, ceremonial washings. It's not the word used for Christian baptisms elsewhere in the New Testament. This list could be found in a generally Orthodox Jewish community. This is, dare I say, this is common ground. This is common ground with what they came from and have been redeemed into. He's saying don't slide back into the general common understandings that you have with the faith that you had before. It's a new covenant. Again, we love and care for Jews. We love and care for Israel. We know that God still is continuing his work with them. Read Revelation We're not dismissing that in any regard, but there is a call to a new, and the Bible says, better covenant. And so he's saying, don't slide back to the comfort of common ground. Well, we all believe in a a larger, someone larger than us. You're sliding back. Who is that someone, right? You start asking questions. When you say you believe in a higher power, what do you mean by that? Well, that's just sort of, we can't really understand, isn't that? Don't fall back into that vague general spirituality. The gospel has a clear call. It has a clear, it's, the Bible says that, look, here's, here's the thing that, that blows my mind. The Bible says there's only one name under heaven that everyone must be saved. And guess what? It's not God. The name you are saved under is not God. It's Jesus who is God. Don't disconnect from that. Don't fall into the general spirituality. It's not that God is a bad term, but the Bible explicitly says there's one name under which all must be saved, and that is Jesus Christ. Not this general higher power that if I tilt the scale and I'm 51% good on the day of judgment, I get in. It doesn't work that way. So he says, don't fall back, and he takes a look at these elementary doctrines. Why are they elementary? Because they're actually shared with the faith they came out of foundational to be yes we know that christianity came from judaism to be sure but the gospel is very different this new covenant look i'm telling you the game's changed the game's changed for better the bible says a better promise better covenant with better promises and so he says don't fall back into these so what I've got written in my notes. So what? These elementary principles move beyond common ground with Judaism. This was a safe common ground that these Jews could revert back to. It was a safe common ground that would spare them a lot of day-to-day angst with their society, with their culture, with their family, with their friends. He says, don't go back. Move forward in your faith. Press forward in your faith. Some of you were just sitting in a lull in college. I'll, I'll, I'll mature after college. You're wasting time. You are wasting time on the sweetest relationship that you can possibly have on this planet. Now you're wasting time. Guys, if you found out she liked you, what do you do? You run super fast, don't you? Ladies, same thing. You find out like dude's hot on you. Like you're like, let's, 
get to know each other better. Let's hang, let's coffee, right? And I'm like the, like the, cre- like the creator of the world is like relationship. You're like after college. We don't have that discipline in our own lives. And yet we give it to God. We're like, don't, don't worry, I'll be with you in four, right? Or five or six or however long it takes these days to graduate, right? Oh, just wait. We don't do that with earthly relationships, but we push it off. I'm in college now. I'm just going to kind of figure general spirituality. I'll get to the maturity stuff later. No, no. The author is very clear. No, now. You need to recalibrate. You need to rehook back into Jesus. You need to rediscover your first love if you're a Christian. And if you're not, I'm telling you, I can't wait for when you are. I can't wait when it goes off and you actually have a personal encounter and it's not just a bumper sticker. It's not religion, it's a relationship. And then when you actually have it, you're like, oh, that bumper sticker is actually pretty correct. I hate bumper stickers, but like it's actually legit. It's a relationship. I get what that means now. Why? Because you'll have a personal, you'll have a personal encounter with Jesus and everything changes. But he says, don't go back to this common ground. It's not that they wanted to abandon religion. It's just that they wanted to make it less distinctively Christian. And that happens today just as it did then. This isn't new. History repeats itself. Every culture, every church, every phase of Christianity has wanted to unhook certain tenets to make it more palatable for the world. And he says, no. Move forward. He says, of the doctrine of baptisms and laying on hands, resurrection of the dead, and of the eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. Here we go. First of all, people debate on just even that one. I'm not even going to go. If God permits, what does that mean? If God permits, relax. Okay. There's a whole, there's studies, there's debates, there's YouTubes, there's Wikipedia entries, there's everything. Just about that one. But it says this, it says, for it is impossible. And I'm not going to unhook the gravity that that word has because it's used elsewhere in scripture in reference to things that are impossible with God. And that's a, by the way, that's what's known as an absolute term. That's what's known as absolute. But people start to go bonkers on this section. We're going to move through it fairly swiftly. Why? Because I want to get to hope. I want to get to the hope. I want to get to what I think the author wanted to be the capstone of this idea, which was not this, which says, for it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and have tasted, wait, I was about to read that again and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come if they fall away. So it's impossible if they fall away to renew them again to repentance since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God, that's Jesus, and put him, that's Jesus, to an open shame. This is virtually all I'm going to say on this. Think about the framework that we've just set up, who he's speaking to and the danger that they're in, which is to fall back into Judaism. It's to say, I I understand the gospel, I've tasted of it, and then to backtrack into Judaism, he's going to turn away and say, I'm going to find repentance, I'm going to find salvation somewhere else. He says it's impossible. 
This is not that if I turn from Jesus as we all have, I can't turn back and be with him. In fact, you know, if you've listened to me at all, you know, when you turn around, he's already there. You've been running dead sprint in sin for years. You turn around, Jesus is like, hey, right here. It's not this God of a mountain that says, well, you ran down, get back up and we'll talk. It's not that God. It's the one that's the God of the garden where he came after his people. It's the God of Hosea where he pursued a prostitute. It's the God on the cross that came to his people. It's the God of revelation that comes back to his people. It's about a God that has always pursued his people. Why? Because he says, I will be with them. They will be my people and I will be their God. It's the only God on the face of the planet. It's the only God of all the other fake false religions. No one preaches a God that comes after you. Every single one of them must base it off their ability to get you to him. That's not the gospel. That's not the God that we serve. It says it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. It's when you realize he's chasing you that you're broken and you fall to your knees. Because he's coming after you and it breaks your heart in your sin, in your addiction, in every single moment he's chasing you. And he pains for you and he mourns for you and he weeps for you and he cries and he's affected by you. We act like he's not affected by us. That he doesn't have emotions, that he hasn't given us the same emotions so we can better understand his emotions. And when you understand that our God is the God, the true God is the one that pursues his people. We don't have to get back to him, we turn around. And so what he's saying is, if you turn from Jesus and you look for salvation anywhere and you go through repentant measures looking to sell any other area of salvation, he says it's impossible. It has to be through Jesus. And he says, you're going to crucify him again. Further evidence of my point, which is if you go back to Judaism, how did they repent in Judaism? It was a bloody mess. They slaughtered goats. He says, you go back. You go back to that sacrificial system. You go back to, to common ground with the old covenant. It's like Jesus is, it's like the cross didn't matter. You go back to slaughtering goats because that was the repentance ritual. It doesn't exist anymore. Thank goodness. Stage would be a mess be awful. I got nothing against goats. Right? You say, you go back, it's as if you're crucifying him again. We don't teach that, that something of this earth must die anymore. It's that someone who was not of this earth that came to this earth died once and for all. So he says, if you turn from Jesus and go through old repentant measures and try to find salvation elsewhere, it's impossible for you to find salvation there. It's only through Jesus. Does that make sense? We're done. Got it? It's the whole thing. People ask, just give them the YouTube and say, it's like a minute and 30 seconds. This is it. We've got to explain the whole thing, right? That's it. That's it. You turn from Jesus and you look for salvation elsewhere. It's impossible. This is not saying that you can't turn around and be in relationship with Jesus again. It's that it's only through him will you find Salvation, And he's going to complete the thought by telling you why, because he's gone ahead of us, which we'll see. And so he gives an illustration here, because again, it says, look, it's impossible. It's as if you crucify him again, you've put him to open shame. That Jesus's cross didn't mean enough, so you go back to killing goats for your sin. He says that would shame the cross. That would be a shame. It's a re-crucifixion, and it puts Jesus to open shame because he couldn't do enough on the cross for you. And so now he gives an illustration. He says, for the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs, useful those, 
useful for those by whom it is cultivated receives blessing from God. He says, look, when it rains and plants grow, produce fruit, it fulfills its purpose. Okay? When it rains, life comes out, fruit is produced, it's fulfilled its purpose. I'm not that bright. It's very easy to understand what God is saying. When he rains blessing, you come alive, you produce fruit, you fulfilled your purpose. Some of us are just content to have rain fall on us and say, I'm alive, but I'm saved by grace, so I don't have to do anything. Saved by grace, bro. I'm not legalist. Happy with my foundation. I don't need to mature. I don't need to become more sanctified. I don't need to progress. Not because you're trying to be saved, but because you have been saved. That's the glory. And that's the, miscon- that's, the, that's the misconception by the outside world that we work for our faith. That is a clear, or we work for our salvation. That is one of the, if not the clearest line in the sand that says Christianity and everyone else. Christianity and everyone else. And they get to make up religions and they don't come up with that. They don't even come up with that. Like, I don't think people will do what we say if it's about grace. And Zach has taught grace is dangerous. Why? Because it allows for us to run wild. And God still comes after us and he still cares for us and he still loves us. And he puts his spirit inside of us and he begins to sanctify us, but he's not a puppeteer. And he allows us to run, but he chases after us when we do. And so he says, look, when it rains, when it drinks the rain, it comes upon it, it bears herbs useful to those. When it is cultivated, receive the blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. It's harsh. I'm sorry. If something I say offends you, I'll repent. But if something God says offends you, you repent. He says, look, if you're a smart farmer and it rains and you've got a field and then just twigs come up with thorns, what do you do? Scorched earth, start over. Why? They're not fulfilling their purpose. What's the point of being a plant, right? You're not doing much, right? If you're not what? I'm a twig in a field, it's good. Right? Insert who here is a twig in a field, right? What happens? Farmer says, I don't need that. I need what? I need fruit to fulfill its purpose. Look, I'm here to tell you tonight, God loves you regardless of how much you don't listen to him. He can't love you any more or any less than he already does, but he has a call on your life. He has a call on your life. That's uncomfortable. I know, but there's no dead bodies in the hallway. Quit crying. He has a call on our life to produce fruit. How that plays out varies for every single one of you. How it bears fruit for me in my job with my family is different than you. This is the best part about being a pastor. I can actually rely on God to bring that up within you. I don't have to go individually and try to figure out what that thing is for you. But what I do want to do is call you to hook back into Jesus. Why? Because he'll begin to reveal it for you. He'll give, I don't know in my life, that's probably because you're not asking him questions. I don't hear from God. Are you asking him questions? First of all, if only he wrote a book about his plan and his will, that's one thing, but prayer and community. Between the Bible, prayer and community, with your pastors, with your Christian friends, 
you're going to hear from God in different ways to be sure, but you're going to hear from him. He's a good dad. I would be a miserable dad if my kids asked me questions and I wouldn't answer. I'd be a miserable dad. Now, I may make them wait. I may say yes. I may say no based on knowing more than them, but I'm not going to sit silent and snicker because they don't get their answer. That's a capricious God, and it's not the God of the Bible. That says, you can't ask me questions. You weren't good this week. You kidding me? Try again next week and then come back to me. It's not God. He's a good dad who has warning for his kids, just like I have to warn my kids, but he doesn't leave it there. He also has encouragement and hope for his kids. A dad without concern, a dad that never warns his children is a dad that does not care for his kids. And there's warning, but a dad that only warns his kids and never encourages kids has no regard for his kids. And God is a perfect father, even if you have a crappy dad now. Praise God, if you have a good dad, I do too, but I understand not everyone does. But we all have a heavenly dad that's absolutely 100,000% of the time perfect. And we can rely on him to bring up areas in our lives where we're not bearing fruit in our relationships, in our service, right? In our jobs, in our education, in our family, in our friendships, in all these areas, rely on him. Tonight I'm asking us, I'm challenging myself to hook back into Jesus in a deeper way because we run from him and trying to figure out why we don't hear from him when we're not asking and talking to him. By the way, some people are like, I don't know how to pray. Take it from Jesus, just talk to him like a dad. Jesus was not holier than now. I, this is that, and this, how dare hath me. No, Jesus said, dad. Father, if there's another way to do this in the garden, he said, Dad, if there's another way, let's go with that one. It wasn't like, you know, pumped on the cross. Like, wasn't excited. It's, dad, if there's a, talk to him like a dad. Why? Because Jesus talked to him like a dad. It's the best advice I could give you on prayer. What's the secret to prayer? Talk to him like a dad. Like a good dad, a loving dad, a dad that cares for you, that was willing to warn you, but also encourage you. Talk to him like a dad. Your prayer life will be on point. Why? Because that's exactly what Jesus did. He talked to him like a dad. You don't have to go through some formula. Jesus actually says, don't do that. Just talk to him like a dad. And so he says, look, if you're not bearing fruit, whatever that means for you in your life, it's the farmer should just then scorch earth on it. We're maturing. We're moving forward. We're not sliding back into comfortability and the general vague spirituality. And he's encouraging them, don't fall back into common ground with the old covenant. Rendering the cross useless. He says, press forward. And notice that he says falling away. By the way, I just want to pull this out real fast. Falling away is different than falling. It's another reason why it's, that was the middle point, actually, that I, I, I jumped over. Falling away from Jesus is different than falling from grace, actually, is what the Bible says, which is actually salvific talk. This is falling away from Jesus. You can, you, you can be back with Jesus when we, even when you've fallen into sin. Does that make sense? We got that? So we move on. And nine, we turn in, we turn a we turn a more encouraging a more encouraging corner. He says, but beloved, see, already, hey, hey sweetie. Listen, guys are like, homie, don't even start. Right? But seriously, right? I do it with my kids. I see my wife do it all the time. When we have to warn or give them consequence, let's say Ethan, Asher. You can see it turn. The author's doing that like a good pastor, giving a good sermon with warning, but also encouragement. 
And he turns the passage and says, but beloved, we are confident. See, he gave him a tough, harsh warning, but he's confident in this. This is what's encouraging. He's confident that they will continue in Jesus. But like a good coach, he's not, he's not content to let them stay where they are. I just looked into this because I'm an AYSO coach all of a sudden out of nowhere. And my little six-year-olds are chaotic and hilarious and amazing and terrible at the same time. And, like, and so... And, and what I learned in AYSO is that they take a look at the root word coach, and it just simply means to carry from one place to another, right? And so a coach is supposed to take someone from where they are into the future, which they can't see out of where they should be. I, I have an idea by the end of the season, and I can already see it. My, my assistant coach on, on Thursday was like, I wish we had, he literally said this, he goes, I wish we had video of the first practice. Because to see where, where we've just with a little bit of coaching have taken them on this, this journey, this progress that's moving them forward, they're becoming better soccer players. They're still terrible because they're six. But like, they're, they're, they're becoming better soccer players. I'm just like super frank with my kids. I'm like, every day I tell them, like, you are average. I love you. But like, and so, but we are taking the, <laughs> we are, my, my wife, she's like, stop saying that. You don't say that. But <laughs> she's like, I know you do it for the joke. But like, and so a coach is to carry you from one place to another into the future. And, and as pastors, as shepherds, the same thing applies. You're to take the, the herd, you're to take the sheep, that's you, congrats. And we're supposed to, we're supposed to move them to where they're supposed to be. We, 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 we've, we've received guidance. We've been ourselves convicted and we know that there's greener grass over here. I pray in our own faith and our own sanctification. And we try to bring people from where you are to where you should be. By the grace of God alone, we say, look, there's, there, I'm telling you, it's better on the other side of this hill. No, but we have patches in a, a brook here. We're fine. So, no, ah, you know, and like, it's just like, go, it's better over here. And he's a good pastor. He's doing the same thing. He says, I'm confident that you're going to be in Christ, but he's, he's pushing them forward. He says, but beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. He's like, look, I know I was harsh. We have to do that lovingly. We have to be harsh sometimes, right? We went through Romans. I don't know how the Sunday night service like even stuck around, right? Like there's harsh things. There's, there's lines drawn in the sand. He says, look, even though we speak of this, he's confident, beloved, I know you want to stay with Jesus. But again, as I said, it's unfortunate that people hone in on, you know, three, four, five, and six and spend all their time there and they miss this. That the author was confident that this wouldn't be a thing. And so I pray for myself and, and Zach too. I'm imposing this on him, but I, I, I pray that I have a restored confidence that you that we don't we're not just like beating a, a, a dead horse or a, a pan up here, like just hook into Jesus. Like I, this this week, I was like, man, I should be more confident that you actually want to. I should actually be more confident that that you are, because we can get disconnected sometimes. Some of you are like, I don't even know you, right? Like I just listen. You're you know. Here and there, but we don't, you don't really know me. You don't know my walk, and I get it. We can't know everyone like that. But I'm confident that your relationship with Jesus, that you want your relationship to Jesus, with Jesus to progress. That you want to become more mature in this, the things of salvation. He says this, more encouragement. Verse 10, he says, For God is not unjust to forget your works and labor of love, which you have shown toward his name. By the way, his name is of his highest concern. If you do a, if you do a study of the whole Bible, his, the, the reason he loves you is for the sake of his name. The reason he rescued Israel out of the desert was for the sake of his name. The reason God ultimately does everything is because he's passionately for his own name. The Bible is actually quite clear if you do that study. So he says, look, I know you guys are with me in this mission. You're, you're with me. You've done work. Because here, here's the, the, the best part. We've kind of talked about, you no know, the sticks and the twigs. Are you doing anything? Some of you are like, I have, Mark. 
I have actually, you just haven't seen me. And you're right, but here's the answer Jesus has. He has seen what you're doing. He has seen the conversation you had with your friend at 2 a.m. at school. He has seen that, though I or Zach haven't. Though the world doesn't. Things go unnoticed by the world. Nothing's unnoticed by God. Nothing is unnoticed by Jesus. He knows every conversation you've had on behalf of his name. He knows every single person you've served selflessly. He knows every single time you've denied yourself. He knows every single time that you wanted to say something and you didn't out of humility and love and care and grace for someone else. Jesus sees it even when your pastors don't. Jesus sees it even when your friends don't. Jesus sees it even when your family doesn't. When even the friend you're ministering to doesn't see it, Jesus does. So for some of you that are laboring in ministry, formal or informal, that are ministering to your friends, I'm here to tell you, Jesus is pleased. Jesus is happy that you're working with him like a good child that goes to work with his dad and wants to be a part of this big story that God's telling, this active member of this gospel, which isn't over, by the way. It's still going. Jesus sees all your labor. He sees all your work in ministry, whether you're on church staff or not. Jesus sees it. He says, it is not unjust, and it would be unjust if God forgot it or didn't see it. He says, but for God is not unjust to forget your works of labor, of love, which you have shown toward his name in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister And we desire each one of you to show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end. This is a pep talk. He just says, keep going. Press on. Don't slow down. I'm not on church staff, and I know the people that are. Like, specific encouragement for you guys. Like, keep going. Like, don't stop. Like, it's frustrating, and it's crazy, and it's the church, and it's broken, it's fractured. If you're like, church is a bunch of hypocrites, we know. You're, you're welcome to come join, right? And give us one more, okay? But for those of you that are on church staff, like, keep going. I'm not. I actually think I have it easier than you guys. I actually do. I genuinely do. I don't think the business world is harder. I think it's easier. It's way easier. As long as I make the money come in, everything's kosher. You guys get treated like rubbish sometimes by us, by the world. Keep going, keep going. To those of you that are serving in some other capacity like me, ministering at the workplace with your family, with your friends, don't stop. Don't stop. Jesus sees it. He's excited. I'm getting, I'm getting goosebumps. Jesus, he is, he's, some of you don't even understand. Like right now he's on a throne. He's like, I'm seriously happy with you. I'm seriously excited. God doesn't get excited about me. Wrong Bible. It's not in it. He does. So he sees. He knows. He loves it. Keep going. Don't stop the conversations with your friends. Don't stop. Serving the church, serving your friends, serving your family, the ones that can't stand when you talk about it, but still come back and ask. Keep serving. He says, press on. Keep going. With same diligence and the full assurance of hope until the end. Verse 12, that you do not become sluggish. says, don't be lazy. But imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Notice it says inherit, not earn. I want to draw a line in the sand. Christianity on one side, every other false religion on the other. 
It's that everything that God gives us is inherited regardless of what we've done. Regardless, he pours it out. It's not earned. It's not earned. Verse 13, he says, when God made a promise to Abraham, he's going to emphasize the point, because he could swear by no one greater, that's God, he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, surely blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. And so he had patiently endured. So after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. This is what's known as the Abrahamic covenant. We won't go into it. It was threefold. It was the promise of land. It was the promise of descendants. It was the promise of blessing and redemption. And God came through. God has a promise and a call on your life. And guess what? He will come through. He will come through. 100% of the time in accordance with his will, not necessarily our wants, but in accordance with his will, he will come through. Be steadfast. Don't slow down. Don't be lazy. Press on. Minister to the saints. Minister to the lost, as you were just once lost as well. He says, and so after he had patiently endured, some of you are in that right now, you're patiently enduring. God says, I know. Keep going. This is going to be but a blip compared to eternity. He says, keep going, press forward. For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. Thus God determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of the promise the immutability, which means the unchangingness, the unchanging nature of his counsel confirmed it by an oath that by the two immutable things, that's the unchanging things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. This hope, this hope, the gospel, what Jesus has done, what Jesus is doing, what Jesus will do. I want you to see everything in that framework. What has Jesus done? What is Jesus currently doing? And what has he yet to do that will get you outside of the present? Though we're here, it will get you outside of this. I've, I've been to war. You know what, what, what was my constant while I was here? It was, it was thinking about the end. It, it was thinking about seeing Carissa again. It wasn't, man, if I could just get to the end of this day because day the day is awesome. It hasn't been terrible. People shot at us, or it hasn't been awesome. It's been awful. Bombs blew up. It's worse than the 405, right? It's just, but, but what did we do? We looked forward. We understood the work that had been done. We had work to do, but I was super excited about what was gonna take place in the future. Going home, super pumped. That's the best day of anyone's life. Apart, like any dude, yawn, apart from wedding, which you're gonna experience pretty soon. Like no joke, there's, there is nothing there's only one glamorous part about combat, and that's the day you get home. That's it. It's not posters and cool, like, oh, you like this? No, it wasn't. It was terrible. It was hot, and they threw stuff at you like bombs. It was terrible. But this day was glorious. The day we got off that bus, glorious. I have video. It's amazing. That pushed me through now. 
And a lot of us don't focus. We don't understand that Jesus still has work to do, that he's coming back. It's going to be amazing. So we get lost in this because we don't see pressing forward to that. We act like the gospel's done because the Bible was written and it's closed and it's sealed. This is an active and ongoing. He says this hope that this gospel is active and ongoing, that there's a call on your life right now to bear fruit. It says this hope, verse 19, we have as an anchor. This hope. By the way, I I wrote this down. I want to get to this real fast. Most people, I would argue, most Christians, apart from the story of the gospel, they view this as a book of law, a book of rules. And I'm here to tell you, there are hundreds of rules, some of which don't apply in the Old Testament. We've taught on that before. Let me know if you have questions about that. Some that still do. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of laws. But you need to know this is a book of thousands upon thousands of promises. And I'm not going to list them all because that would take four days, but I've got categories. You down with categories? Just some that I could find. There's a promise of eternal life. Isn't that exciting? All right, sermon's over. We're done, right? Promise of forgiveness. There's promises of the Holy Spirit, who's our helper and comforter. Again, these are just categories, and then there's just how many under each category. There's promise to meet our needs and the riches of Christ. There's a promise of emotional, physical, and spiritual healing. There's a promise of wisdom and guidance from God himself. There's promises relating to children and family and marriage. There's promises of peace. There's promises of overcoming temptation. There's promises of protection. There's promises of overcoming fear and death. There's promises of a resurrection. There's a promise of the end of suffering. It goes on and on and on. This is first and foremost, if you want this as a book of lists, the biggest list that comes out of this is the list of promises God has for you. So I'm like, I don't know what they are. Read the book, don't wait for the movie, right? I stole that from your dad, <laughs> right? Promises, 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 promises. But he says this, he says, this hope in these promises and what Jesus has done, what he's doing, what he has yet to do, it says this, we have as an anchor of our soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil. That's God. My question is, what currently anchors your soul? I'm going to confess, you know what I have been running furiously toward as my anchor in recent months is business. Furiously. I love business. It's not wrong, but what happens is that I make it God. Business is intrinsically good, I would argue. Some of you disagree. I have a book for you to read. It's called Business for the Glory of God by Wayne Grudem. Okay, I've been furiously running after and setting my hook in business as my anchor. What is it for you? Is it education? Is it your grades? Does your boat rock when you get an A minus? Some of you, that's never even happened the other way. Okay, right? Like, no, I party when I get an A (laughs) minus. Who's the weird people that get mad about that? Is it your education? Is it your grades? Is it your career? Yeah, for me. Is it your family? Now, I want you to notice something. Education, career, family. I I got little kids that I would do anything for, but they are not who I put my anchor into. They're not love them. This has nothing to do with not stewarding my family. 
but they are not the anchor of my soul. Although my daughter's trying. Okay, <laughs> 10 months, like, you wait. Okay. Is it relationships? Is it your relationship? Whether it's marriage, whether it's fiance, whether it's dating, whether it's just the thought of dating. Is that what shatters your world? Because you've got an anchor hooked into that component. And when that gets rocked, the whole boat goes with it. Is it sex? Is it family? Is it money? Is it popularity? Is it alcohol? Where do you run to for your comfort, for your peace, for your identity, for your purpose in life? And here's what I didn't do. I didn't list anything that's inherently sinful. Education, career, family, relationship, sex, family, money, popularity, alcohol, none of those things are declared to be intrinsically sinful by the Bible. The opposite, these things are actually good things that we turn into God things. It doesn't have to be sin. It can be things that are good and then we make them sin. We're good at that. I think it was Luther or Calvin or someone said that our heart is an idol factory. We can make an idol out of anything. People are like, is this sinful? Everything can be sinful. I'm telling you, homie, that chair can be sinful if you focus on it too much. I'm telling you, it can be done. People like worship furniture, right? It can be done. They worship golden calves. What was that? It's material, right? This isn't even a list of things that are inherently wrong. What do you have your hook set into? Where is your anchor? What, when it shakes, your soul shakes. And it doesn't have to be things that are even bad. But he says this, this hope we have is an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, which enters the presence behind the veil where the forerunner has entered for us. Jesus has gone before us into the presence of God. He has come here from heaven. He's gone back. He has run the entire race. He has seen eternity from start to finish. He doesn't, he's not subject to space or time. He actually created it. He sees before time, after time, underneath it and over top of it. He's not bound by any of that. He's seen it all. He's gone into the presence as God. He says, Jesus is the forerunner has entered for us. Even Jesus having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek, the forerunner. I have the Greek word again. I'm not going to pronounce it. But it had two general uses. One, as Zach has talked about, one was in a sailing term. So in a sea bearing term, it was a forerunner that would take a small boat out to land and anchor the larger ship. He would actually hop in this little boat, row out there, and he would actually anchor that ship to land. And so in that, Jesus has gone and set the anchor. It, interestingly enough, also came from the use of military reconnaissance. In this idea that Jesus has gone ahead and assured victory. He goes forward knowing that others will follow. If you'll spare me a fast military story, I was not in reconnaissance, but I was in a, in a unit that operated much like it. We only worked with rangers and SEALs when we were in Iraq. And my job specifically is to go into the enemy lines 
under cover of darkness, sometimes under parachute, though we didn't do any parachuting in Iraq. It was to go ahead of time, scamper up a hill, cover and conceal myself and my radio operator, Bear. I called him Bear because he used to hibernate. Okay, and, and he was pretty hairy too. And so, um, and then I would, when the sun came up, there I was on a hill where no one could see me with my radio operator, and I would begin to call in airstrikes and artillery and mortar fire, and we would destroy the battlefield so that the infantry could come in and we could assure their victory. I did a lot of ISR, intel, surveillance, and reconnaissance. We send back the message of what's taking place. Why? To assure the victory of those that are coming after us. Jesus began in heaven. He came to earth. He went into the grave. It couldn't hold him. He came back out of the grave. He's gone back to heaven. He says, I've seen it all. And in me, you win. That's arrogant. No, it's biblical. In Jesus, you cannot forget that part. It says, in him, we are more than conquerors. We are more than conquerors in Christ. That's why tonight I want you to hook in to Christ alone. That's it. We're going to go into worship now. And I want you focused on that. If it's spurred up any unhooking, terrific. But don't fascinate on that anymore. Now you have to be proactive, move forward in maturity, which is you're going to pursue a deeper relationship with Jesus. Listen to me, tonight. Tonight, that's kind of harsh. I know. It's kind of uncomfortable. I know. That's what the chapter is about. Tonight, hook your anchor into Jesus. Confess that you've had your anchors as I'm doing. Confess that you've had anchors elsewhere. And when the world shakes, you shake and you don't want that anymore. I don't want my hook in the political process. I'm going to be a part of it, but it's not where I'm anchored. I don't want my anchor in business. Why? Because businesses crumble every day in this country. I'm going to work in it. Yes, I'm going to try to make it better. Yes, I'm going to redeem the time. Yes, but I don't have my anchor in it anymore by the grace of God. Wherever it is for you tonight, whether you're unhooking from any area, I want us simply to now focus on being proactive and hooking into Jesus because he wants to hear from you. Amen?